Welcome, everybody, to episode 39 of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. I'm your host, Bo Richards, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Dan Humphrey. How are you doing, Dan? Greetings and salutations. I'm doing well, Bo. Good, good. Today, we have an amazing guest, one I've been excited to get on to the podcast. He's a jiu-jitsu practitioner, and he's also a uh, local police officer. I'd like to introduce everybody to Officer Craig Hanaumi. Hey, Craig. Good afternoon, you guys. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Of course. It. We're, uh, like I said, we're very excited to uh, bring you on. We wanted to do this for a while, and I finally worked up the courage to uh, to send you a message and ask you to come on. <laughs> well, I thought it was uh, kind of double exciting, seeing as we, we knew ahead of time that we were all brothers in jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. but didn't realize that Craig had actually trained at this school back in the day. Yeah, back so, in the day. Yeah, a little, little closer than we realized. So, very cool. <laughs> Let's start there. Walk us through uh, your jujitsu journey and how you ended up at uh, our old gym many years ago. All right. So, jujitsu journey started about. I mean, I guess you can kind of count our academy, but Honolulu PD Academy had a little bit of it uh, back in two thousand three, but not, uh, not, not other, not much other than what certain positions were. Like this is. You're on your back, your feet crossed behind the back of the other person that's uh, between your legs. That's called your closed guard and uh, mount and how to escape from that. Um, I don't know if I, I, I guess that wouldn't really count that one. But um, the my first, I guess, formalized introduction for longer than just like a class was uh, in Torrance, California at the Gracie Academy in 2008 with... Uh, Hiron and Henner, and they were doing a week-long law enforcement course that uh, I had put in to attend with a training request, and I got approved. So that was my first actual exposure to the art as it was um, through our lens, law enforcement lens. And I I tell people that's probably the best uh, introduction I could have had. Mm -hmm. Dude, no kidding. You lucky dog. Yeah, it's definitely something that um, made me motivated to keep training. And I think that's part of their their purpose of that course is if they can get a person who, like me, didn't have any jujitsu, and at the end of the week, make that person want to continue training beyond that course, that's, that's like, I think that's one of their wins for sure. So that was definitely me and came back home here to Washington now and got a couple of my uh, coworkers to practice doing some of their um, the Gracie Survival Tactics curriculum. Mm-hmm. And that was right, that year was right when they released the combatives, the Gracie combatives, combatives uh, their, their, what was their white to blue curriculum. And I started to work on that with whoever I could find, the like coworkers, and, and I just kept going. Um, I forget, Brian and uh, training at Evergreen, that probably was about 2000, maybe 2010 or 11, around there. I can't remember the exact date, but... That was, um, Byron was still brown belt back mm-hmm. then. And I, I know my shift that I was working at that time would almost always, I'd miss about probably 70% of the class and I'd come basically at the end for the last half hour, which is still better than nothing. And um, I used that as kind of like the lab to to gauge if I could uh, hit something or not, like mm-hmm. a, a sweep or a submission. and. And then uh, between that station, my garage, and then in between, we'd go down to Torrance every year. Um, all those places kind of combined. So 
I had a little bit different journey because there was no real black belt under that I was able to study under from the first probably almost until a couple of years ago regularly. Um, and it stayed that way until, what, 2000? Nathan Orchard moved up to to Washington from or Oregon, and mm-hmm. he opened up a school right about five minutes from our station. And it was mostly no gi, well, it was only no gi, right? So I had to um, kind of step out of my comfort zone. And that was, like a, that was a great opportunity for me to not only learn um, specific no gi stuff, because I was used to doing in the gi most of the time, but to learn from somebody, you know, a good guy like him and just good person. And um, so, yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Yeah. Are you, are you still training with him or? Yeah. Uh, I, whenever I can, it's hard with our schedule. Like I said, it's hard to get consistent mat time, but uh, I just actually, right before I got here, I was, I was watching his day class for a little bit and um, yeah, seeing everybody's individual pathways to how they develop their, whatever you want to call it, their style or something. It's pretty interesting. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's unlimited, right? How much different ways you can go about doing this thing. And I think that's one of the funnest parts about it. It's just, there's, so many right ways. I mean, the right way is your way. You know, that's that's the way to the way that works. Yeah, the way that works for you. That's it, and that's why I like. So I just connected to it so much, I guess. Well, Nate Orchard too. I mean, I think we're we're somewhat fortunate to have him in the area. Just to have a an active competitor that is world class like him. It's different. Yeah, you know, I visited once. I got a chance to roll with him. I was like, oh, that's what world class means. That's different. <laughs> yeah, no, he's he's super. He's good. Um, I was the most surprising thing about him was um, not his the, as a practitioner, of course, you can see videos and watch competition. But um, his ability to teach is really, really good. I was impressed by that, and his ability to teach uh, newer people or people who aren't used to um, doing the stand up portion, which was. I'll definitely classify myself as one of those people that wasn't comfortable with any kind of stand-up um, sequences of anything. And the way he's able to uh, share those is really, really good. It's a fever. I know, I think the misconception is people connect his uh, game to the dead orchard all the time. And I can see how that happens because I guess it's named after him. But um, I think the best part of his jujitsu is, I mean, like he he hardly even does that uh, in the class, you know. He's like, "Oh, this is my move." He doesn't talk like that. I mean, he, <laughs> I, you would almost not even know that that is a thing uh, if you were to go classes and not have the background of um, how that was. became, uh, you know. I, and I think just like any other affiliation, like each person's lens is going to be different. So even if it's under a tenth planet umbrella or under the whatever banner, it's still seen through the lens of that individual instructor, which is kind of a neat way to. Uh, to learn because it's it's uh it's definitely different it's not i i you know, nate doesn't do the um all the 10th planet warm-ups i know not everybody does those either but um that's what's kind of my my uh preconception of what the class was going to be that and a lot of like rubber guard and it was actually like neither of those things so it's kind of cool to to uh experience and it's like i said right next door to us we had him at our station a few times to teach our some of my coworkers, and it's good i mean it's like Take advantage, right? When the the teacher shows up in the area, like, why wouldn't you know? I think it's in everybody's best interest to go check out like what what that person has if they have an interest in that particular activity. Mm-hmm. Dude, for sure. And we kind of talked about this before. Just the uh, the old school closed mentality 
like old, old school, it was really extreme. But now there's more of an open sense of, yeah, go visit other schools. Your professor's not going to give you a hard time for taking a different class. So to, especially as big as jujitsu has gotten, you know, within any major metropolitan area, there's going to be several high level uh, black belts that you can go learn from, get a sense of their style, pick up some things that fit, maybe not worry so much about some things that don't fit because you'll fill that gap with a different instructor or whatever. Find your path, really. Sure. But to have different options to, to learn, I think, is super valuable. I think it's kind of weird that when you think about it from a context of jujitsu is an activity that people do, presumably because they like it, because it's fun. And if you compare it to other activities that people do for fun, it doesn't... Some of the things that we consider in jiu-jitsu don't even make sense in other contexts. Like if, uh, so I skateboarded a little bit when I was a kid and uh, I could, surfing would be another thing. You don't, you wouldn't be, I mean, what way do you learn how to do those things? I mean, like whatever way you want, there's no, like, why well, better ask <coughs> permission from my skateboard coach or my surf guru to go surf over here. I mean, this, it sounds weird when you think about it like that and. I think uh, it's a good thing that there's um, open, um, kind of like open, open-minded people for the art up here. So I, I'm pretty sure some places are still. I know Hawaii was kind of like that in the beginning uh, when Helson Gracie came over because he kind of had only kind of like the exclusivity of the whole state pretty much for quite a while. And I, I can't say for certain because I'm not under his lineage, but. I'm pretty sure that some people would have to ask permission to go train some other places. And I don't know. I mean, I, I get it from the respect standpoint. I understand that. But just from, the, like I said, the practical art, like if I do this for fun, why do I have to ask permission for somebody else to do mm-hmm. jujitsu someplace else? I mean, that, I, that's, why, that's why I do it. Like that's the whole, and asking permission, like I said, the respect part is fine, but it's just, I wouldn't ask permission to go skateboard someplace or surf someplace or, go swim with my other friends or play basketball with my other, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, you keep going, right? Just, it, I want to play a pickup game that I'm going to go do it. And, you know, hopefully I don't get hurt and I have fun. And that's the whole point. That's what jujitsu is. It's just, a, it's a way to exercise and connect. And I don't know, it gets, it gets more complicated when people add on these other yeah. restrictions and parameters about what it should or shouldn't be. It's one of the things I liked about Brian or like about Brian is that, He's never been like, you can't go anywhere and train anywhere. He's like, I don't care what you do. Just You're helping me teach youth classes, so make sure you're not hurt <laughs> so you can do that. You know? <laughs> I think historically, it's, it's just it's a, a holdover from 50 plus years ago. I mean, if you think pre-UFC and pre-internet, uh, keeping secrets like that was really valuable. Yeah. You know, when, when Helsin was active – when Alio was active, they had something that nobody else had. So you keep that close to the vest. It makes sense. Oh, yes. But now it's completely different. You know, the, the internet has opened up everything. Information flows freely. And you just can't have that kind of closed down mentality anymore and expect to thrive. Because even if you've got some special secrets that, that you keep to yourself, all the rest of the world that is sharing the information is going to surpass you. Yep. And if you're not willing to go learn from them, because you figure you got it all figured out, then uh, you're going to fall behind. They're going to have some tricks for you that you don't have an answer for. I think also depends on what the goal is of the person who's doing the jujitsu, the practitioner's goal. Because, and, and like you mentioned, the early, the first generation practitioner's goal might be to fight for the school or fight in UFC or competitive compete uh, for some particular purpose. I mean, I think there's more people now who train that just enjoy it. And 
I don't think the, I think one of the differences from now and back then was there, there's no, I think most schools have a lens of trying to accept more people through the stuff like having a fundamentals class or a class that's not a mixed group, just of, you know, 50, 50 people from a first day student to like a six, seven year student all together at the same time. And I mean, some people just want to do jujitsu for, uh, for fun. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I mean, I think those people back in the nineties or late eighties, early nineties, you, it would be hard for those people to have it uh, sustainable because they're probably getting beaten up every single class, like literally beaten up. Uh, and then if they couldn't hang right, then they'd be like, all right, see you later. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in the next guy. And, uh, I think this seems like there's a difference now with the, the way places cater to, to a more, I guess, broader population. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I, I think that's good. I agree. It's 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 opened up a, a broader acceptance of uh, a hobby level jujitsu player. Like I was f- myself, I was first introduced. I've told this on the podcast, but like in the mid '90s, and there was still a whole lot of the old school vibe. I mean, it was it was a tough room, which you know, as a young man in in my 20s, there's some value in that, toughen you up and and some of that. But now that jujitsu has grown so much more and opened up to more of the hobby level players, which I completely am, uh, it's just, it's more welcoming and more, more people get to experience and enjoy jujitsu, you know? Cause if you're, if you, if only, if the only thing that was left was like fight gyms, not a lot of people are going to be willing to put up with that. But, yeah. No, even I put myself in that category. Yeah. Mid forties, something I would look in the door of a gym that was like that. I was like, I can't do jujitsu. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be able to, and that'd be correct because that the way it was done back then was was a little bit too. Like I said, it was either the sweet, the sink or swim, you know. And there's value in that, like I said. But I think, ironically, that that redu- that eliminates the population that needs jujitsu more. Yes, yes. I, excellent point. I think that um, that's one of the reasons you don't see very many middle-aged or older men or women who do continue to do wrestle and judo is because of the intensity. You know, those are just naturally intense sports, um, more so than jujitsu, even competitively. But you kind of, as you get older, your body just can't handle it anymore. Your body will tell you when you're done. Yeah. There's no hobby wrestling. There's no, (laughs) or hobby, I'm just a hobby judoist. It doesn't work that way. It's it's, it's hard to find, right? And um, that's one of the reasons I think it's the intensity, it's not sustainable. And I, you know, I don't know if there's a a person or a thing to blame for it, but there's, there's, there's ways to do everything if you modulate. And I think the shifting of the, what the perception of, success or victory is, I think is a big piece of that. And mm-hmm. I feel like jujitsu kind of went in the direction of having more people. And I know some people don't like it, right? Some people are like, oh no, it was better when it was just the fittest, the survival of the fittest. And Well, there's a, I don't know. <laughs> there's an issue that can come about. I think people have a legitimate fear to worry about, which is what happened to all the traditional martial arts. Correct. After the seventies, right. And the explosion of karate movies, Everyone was doing karate and taekwondo and aikido and the more traditional styles, and they started to get watered down. And then you had the McDojo issue. So as you open this jujitsu up to the population, there's always a fear of that. Yeah, so I get a, that. Yeah, sure. it was a slippery slope fallacy. You yes. can't just say that it it's going to happen yeah. because, but it doesn't mean the val- the argument's not necessarily valid. You just got to watch out, make sure that you're. You're um, 
how you promote and your expectations are still high. I think the quality control of jujitsu is makes it much easier to, mm-hmm. to if you want to use the term like regulate or check, because you can tell right away right when if somebody is some belt and they're saying they say what what they say they are what they are is like really really big difference. Um, I don't think it seems like it's easier to verify, and, and I, I don't think the community would would tolerate if there were places coming up that would what that promotes some some standard that they aren't mm-hmm. um whether they stay in business or not i mean that, that almost could be completely separate from if uh the community respects i i think it's still small enough that people will still know um and all you have to do right is if the gym has an open mat and you come in and you can find out and i i, I don't know i think it's still it's still very um there's a quality control that is still in place that some of the other arts just don't have too too far too far gone already. Yeah, well, realistically, you can't fake jujitsu. You would have to completely isolate your little school and not let anybody in or anybody out because yeah. there's you know there's there's truth on the mats. You show your role and yeah. you got what you got. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if if you tap, you tap. There's no arguing that. That's that's in my mind. That's the beauty of it because it is. It's 100% truth. You're going to offer what you have to offer. Your training partner is going to offer what they have to offer, and, and you're going to figure it out for that session. Um, and there's no there's no bullshit in your way around that. Yeah. It's you know it's uh, you know as we've said before, it is pressure tested. It's live resistance. It's, That's the key, I think. Yeah, it's is. the real deal. It's there's there's no jujitsu katas. <laughs> you know, you you go out and roll, and you see where you're at. That's it. <laughs> There, there could be scripted sequences, right, that we go through for the flows and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's if it's the way, the true value, like you said, the pressure testing of mm-hmm. can you do this against somebody who doesn't want you to do it um, or doesn't expect you to do it. That's you know, and typically it'd be in competition. I mean, it could be in a real situation, but um, at a at a lesser degree, it is it's a it's a spot, right? It's a role with another person. That, mm-hmm. Doesn't so, want to just get submitted or swept or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of real life situations, I'm curious if you can, because you're a police officer, do you mind sharing how you, how you became a police officer? What made you decide that? How'd you fall into that job? Yeah. How do you like it? Yeah. I don't have any, unfortunately, I don't have any profound story, but um, in a nutshell, I, my mom's side of the family, even my dad's side, they have a lot of um, academically overachieving people in it including my parents. Um, my mom has a master's in education. After graduating from the University of Hawaii, she went to UCLA to get that. And then she taught uh, graduate school, came back to teach uh, elementary school for almost like 30-something years. And sister, I have a younger sister who's a pediatrician. So a lot of academically, that's really rock star kind of aunts, uncles, and even cousins. And then, so I was, as I was struggling through college to basically try to ensure I graduated, I, I, I kind of realized like that was the, that was not my, I didn't feel like that was my thing, or maybe I didn't want it to be my thing as far as a background of um, any kind of occupation that had a degree connected to it. And plus all the other relatives I had, a lot of them were doing those things already. So I couldn't, couldn't be the first teacher. Cause like I have a bunch of aunties and uncles who teach and including cousins now. Um, 
plus my mom kind of dissuaded me to not when uh, not get into that when I saw her correcting all her papers, you know, lesson plans and all the <laughs> all the stuff she did for free, and, and then all the supplies she had to buy on her out of her own pocket, um, and then all the other non-teaching related responsibilities she had, like talking to parents and uh, students and setting up meetings and all those other things. But um, anyway, I just I fell into law enforcement because it was a profession that my both parents respected as far as having a stable, I guess, good good retirement, um, pension. Both parents had uh, union backgrounds. My mom's a teacher, of course, like I said, my dad worked for in the Department of Labor. And that, they valued, even without outwardly saying it, I could tell they valued that, that kind of stability. And that was kind of like the one job that I could tell, okay, if I said I did this, if I was getting into law enforcement, they would be, okay, that's respectable. And then, oh, the retirement is to have a good uh, retirement and good benefits. So that's kind of that's how I fell into it. And I had a couple of high school classmates that were in uh, law enforcement back home. And um, I thought, well, if they did it, I, I, I can try it. And so I applied and uh, when I got in, uh, I could tell they were, they kind of they kind of left me alone after that. I tell people I graduated from, I took like six and a half years to get my BA in psych. And when I finished, I mean, before I finished, I knew that you can't really do anything with a BA in psych by itself to connect to your field of study. I mean, you need a master's degree if you want to be a counselor and mm -hmm. in any, almost any setting, school setting or anywhere. And the last thing I wanted to do was more school. So I finished and I did, I was a, I worked with kids that had uh, autism spectrum uh, disorder and from the high functioning to really low functioning in the school setting, in the group home setting. And I did that for about three years and I did personal training for a little while. And all those jobs were, I enjoyed them a lot in individually, the individual aspects, but my parents, I could tell they were just like, man, when you gonna get a, when you're gonna get a real job? You know, they never <laughs> said it to me, but I could tell they were thinking that. So I told them, I'm going to go into law enforcement. They're like, all right, they let me go. And they, leave, they left me alone and <laughs> ended up liking it. And so that's, that's, that's kind of like it. I, I fell into it and I mean, it worked out good. I mean, it's the highest paying job. When I think about it in hindsight, for if you have a bachelor's of arts in a relatable degree, in a relatable field, you can, in our department, we get a, a pay bump, uh, a, a percentage-based um, incentive for post-high school education. So I was like, it's the highest, I think it's the highest paying degree I could get, uh, highest paying job I could get with an undergraduate degree in psychology. I was trying to think of some other ones or uh, sociology, but uh, unless you want to go back to grad school, you know, it's hard to utilize that degree in jobs that, that would pay enough money to make a living. So yeah. it's probably fair to say too, you wouldn't find a thing that is as close to as active, assuming you value having an active job and not sitting in a cubicle eight hours a day. Yeah. That, that, that's sure. going to be a bonus too. Yeah, no, I, just, I, I knew that right away too. Sitting down <clears throat> at a chair is not my thing. And for health reasons and just just boredom, you know, I just want to get up and move around. And I mean, technically when we are in our city or any city where you work, I mean, the entire city is your office, you know, essentially, right? This, your workspace is the, the jurisdiction of the department. And I mean, even beyond sometimes, so. Cut to training day. We in the office, baby. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm curious uh, as you know, civilians or stuff. We and being plugged into jujitsu, we've seen the uh, the Gracies advertising the GST Gracies mm -hmm. Rival Tactics. But you know we're not in law enforcement, so we don't get the, the sneak peek. So I would I would ask a, what'd you think of it? And b, uh, have there been applicable situations on duty? 
Well, it's a it's a great course. It's a it's a course that is. I think the more impressive thing about that course, which somebody from the outside wouldn't necessarily understand, is if it's taught by a person that has no law enforcement experience, it's it's a little harder to get the buy-in because, I mean, you could be black belt, like world champion, but I mean, if you can go into a, bu- a room with a bunch of 10, 15 plus year veterans uh, in law enforcement, they're going to still be like, well, what, have you ever had a somebody try to grab your gun or have you ever been tasered or pepper sprayed? I mean, it's it, it, there's a there's a certain degree of uh, similarity, of course, from jujitsu and just as far as the kinesthetic aspect of grappling, but there's a there's big differences, and um, I think it's harder to sell for a person who, to um, who has law enforcement if you don't have any, and um, that's one of the most I think one of the more impressive things about the brothers. I mean, they've granted they've been doing they've been teaching since they were probably 13, 14 years old, and they've been doing that course specifically since I'd say late '90s. I think from their dad from the mid '90s on. And so they have a lot of lot of years under their belt for that, but um, it's not easy to to get the buy-in, I think. And I I, I understandably get that as a from my perspective now, because like I said, it's to just like any. I mean, I don't I don't think it's that different from any other job. Like if a person wasn't a doctor, and you're trying to teach doctors how to do something that's connected to being a physician. I mean, that's a reasonable question. Like, well, have you done this before? And if the answer is no, then okay. There's still a subject matter expert in that field, but it's a little bit more relatable when somebody has the background. Um, I think anybody who trains can relate to that. It's like trying to explain a move mm-hmm. and you've never rolled before. Yes. Right? You, that's you, a good you may analogy. have all the the the, um, the technical aspects of it down. You may even be correct, but if you've never actually rolled, it's going to be tough to listen. Yeah. And there's differences like the their course... Uh, there's a lot of good courses. Um, I think probably in the beginning, it was more just, oh, let's teach officers a bunch of jujitsu moves. So here's a sweep, here's like three sweeps and uh, escape. And, you know, it was more just purely jujitsu. And I think it expanded over the, whatever, 20 something years they've been doing it to include stuff about handcuffing transitions. Uh, that's definitely not a thing that is done in jujitsu. Team tactics, that's another piece. Mm-hmm. You know, two officers, one uh, arrestee, utilizing, you know, two people. Uh, most, most of the time, we don't roll two versus one. Um, but there's definitely, like, some simple tactics that you can apply to making that versus, I mean, basically, if you have two people trying to control one person and they don't have communication, it's like, it might as well just be one person controlling one person. Or it's almost like one person trying to control two people. Because uh, if there's no um, dialogue between the two people, it's it's it goes really bad, um, or can go really bad. And the, that so the team tactics piece, um, weapon retention. There's a piece that has. I think if you're going to honestly do law enforcement related courses, even if it's jujitsu, I mean, I feel like it's a, obviously very applicable because of the control and the ability to protect yourself. If there's no mention of those things, it's it's kind of it has to have it. You can't. You can't exclude that out of the equation because we're not going to be grappling people with rash guards and boy shorts. I mean, <laughs> and I mean, if we're not, we have to. That that has to be accounted for in close quarters, right? Because that's how. That's how that that realistically could happen when you have a situation where someone tries to grab a pistol or, I mean, weapons come out sometimes and just equipment falls out and. 
So as long as that piece is introduced and it's, I mean, it's obviously has to come from a person who has, it helps to have the credibility of doing the, the job. Cause in, as you guys have seen probably on videos, there's a lot of people who are promoting techniques of weapon related retention or whatever, even disarms and it's like- it's, McDojo it's, life. It's not, yeah. it's not legitimate. I mean, it's, it's, it's you really, really, <laughs> really bad, right? And yeah. I think that's the hard part about the art in general or any art, not just jujitsu, just there's no, there's, it's hard to quality control that. Cause who's, who's gonna, who's gonna do it, right? I mean, if nobody does it, which is not really a regular, there's no body of people that go around and, hey, you guys not doing legitimate stuff over here. Um, it's, that's, that's what makes it really, really challenging, but. So when you did GST, do they, um, are, are you training with duty belts with like dummy guns and stuff? Do they actually get some of those? Yeah, we, we bring our own gear and then okay. the, the last day we, we put it on. Um, and that's cool. I mean, like as an introduction, I think that's a great idea because like I said, at the end, we're not gonna be, I think that's a commonly asked question. And I think that's one of the reasons why detractors don't, one of the many reasons why a person who is a detractor of the grapple doesn't agree with it. Cause they say, well, you can't do that with your, your whole kit on your vest and your belt. I mean, I think it's good to, I think, I don't think it's a good idea to start off with it. Cause that makes it, cause if it's already difficult without it, starting off with it on, it's gonna make it even more difficult. And then, then you're not gonna have any buy-in and people won't believe they can do mm -hmm. it. So if you started with, uh, without and then introduce it at some point afterwards, I think it's, it's much, much easier to, to get the, cause your body will hopefully have a little bit of um, motor pattern down and then you'll be able to understand movements. And then when you add on the gear, it's not gonna be, it shouldn't be that different, uh, but it's good to feel how, how it limits like all the vest and the belt limits, uh, uh, torso flexion and the stability to even do a sit-up. Um, and then you add on the other stuff like boots. I tell people all the time, boots with uh, deep tread is really the surprising thing about it. It makes um, all the loose, any kind of clothing will get caught on it. So if you're doing any kind of bottom game of anything, besides not being able to point your toe or flex you know, your ankle joint, um, if the other person has like a jacket or some kind of loose clothing like that, or a t-shirt even, it's going to get all caught up all under that. And um, it makes it different. You know? Yeah, That's an excellent point. I never I've thought about that. I've yeah. uh, seen a couple of videos of you doing some training stuff in full gear and it looks awesome. It looks hard, but. Well, yeah, I, I, in the beginning I did it as a, just a selfish reason, just to know like how it was like for myself. Yeah. You know? and, and then uh, it became kind of like a, a way to share the art and, show the applicability for other people who either don't train or are not, not even in law enforcement, but maybe jujitsu practitioners to get it's like, oh, I could, you know, I could do jujitsu and I connect to work. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of a neat, you know, I could be a pro athlete as close to a pro, I get paid to do jujitsu. That's, that's a pro athlete, right? Right there. <laughs> as close as you can come to it. Um, so yeah, it's a multiple benefits. And like I said, primarily just for me to feel like how it feels like when you have all this stuff on, like how I would have it. And I was talking to um, my other friends one time, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, hopefully I won't be grappling anybody nude, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers I, crossed. Right? <laughs> so if I, if I should have what I have, like what I expect to have on and what I expect to wear, I, that should be, so as there's less surprises, right? And that's, that's all we can, that's all we can do. There's always gonna be, there always could be a potential curveball, but I wanna limit those, you know, I wanna yeah. reduce that as much as possible. If something falls out of my, pocket 
It's like, oh, I know I should expect that. Like my keys falling out of my pocket, I, rolling with all your stuff. First of all, it's kind of sometimes not even safe because if there's uh, knives and stuff like that, folding knives, you know, you have to down those anyways. So it won't just come out and cut the mat up or, you know, injure anybody else. But um, you won't know otherwise. I mean, you won't you won't know unless you, unless you... Um, pressure test. Pressure test. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the big value of doing that uh, our art, you know, you can find out if it works or not. And if it doesn't work, then can fix it. And if it works, can verify it wasn't luck the next time. And Right. So have you uh, utilized any of the specific GST tactics, like cuffing transitions and things like that in the field? Uh, well, I mean, back when we had the, we call it the vascular neck restraint. Uh, that, was, that was one of our less lethal force options. Um, I mean, there's people... I've been in law enforcement for about 18 years now. And I mean, if you consider that, that's like a long time, right? I only use it three times. <clears throat> and um, I mean, two of the times the person went to sleep and I mean, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. Exactly what um, we predict and train for. And I mean, I would even say it was easier than training because the person who's getting the neck restraint is not they don't understand how to defend it or anything. So, I mean, for as a small person, right, 135 pound person, I mean, I think speaking in that technique specifically, right, if, if presuming you're applying it correctly and uh, I don't want to get into, I mean, can talk about the statistics of it if you want to, because that actually even further validates that it's, if you do it correctly, it's probably the one of the safest force options there are. But at, on the other side of the, coin i mean you know the public perception we work for the public so if the public doesn't want us to do something then they won't do it and um so that was changed recently and so that's a thing that's not in the toolbox anymore and mm -hmm. i mean complaining about it not going to change it um sure even though you know like i said if you look at the data it's, it's kind of hard to find data that shows that i mean or look at any force option like punching somebody in the face like how much times does somebody get injured from that Versus putting somebody to sleep. I mean, it's not even close. Yeah. Uh, but. Well, Henry just put out a, a video. I think he was speaking specifically to what happened in New York City, where they've, I don't know if it's a city or a state, it might be New York State, but they banned the neck restraints as well as essentially any torso control. Yeah, body to body control. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you, you're not allowed to mount anyone, you're not allowed to side control. Mm -hmm. You basically, I mean, have to grab arms. Yeah, there's a, I think, I don't know who coined it, but they call that the diaphragm bill. I know all the, some of the jujitsu people. And I mean, the intent of it, but I'm, I, I, if I look at a situation, I like to assume that the intent of whatever the, the reason for the changes was good. I mean, I, I try to start from that point. So assuming the intent of the legislators who decided to do that were good, they're trying to prevent um, death or uh, serious injury, right? From having no compression on the torso. So if you say, well, if you don't have, if you're not allowing any officer to compress the torso, then they won't die from that or they won't be seriously injured from that. So I, I get the intent, right? But obviously the other side of that is, well, then how do you realistically control somebody if you can't do those things? How do you- 11. How do you, how do you, really, <laughs> you can go into the, the honey hole or uh, the ashigurami, but I mean, yeah, you, you can't, you can't hold somebody down without connecting to their upper body. Yeah. It's almost impossible. I mean, even as a black belt, you can't even, using limbs only, 
Uh, I mean, I think ironically what happens is when there is legislation like that passed, it makes situations more potentially injurious because yeah. if you're still going to arrest somebody and if they are fighting you, what else are you going to be able to do? Now you got to move to impact and things yeah, like that. Yeah, you have that, to hit right? them. Like, I yeah. mean, and, or not arrest them at all. And then that's like, well, which one do you want, right? And presuming people still want that, they still want you know people to be taken into custody for, for crimes they commit against other people, then if you're in that direction, then you have to say, okay, well, taking away less lethal force options ironically limits the transition from less force to more force. And it makes it more likely actually that it's going to be a higher level of force, which is more injury potential, which... I mean, that's, I, was, I you know, I don't think that's that abstract of a concept to understand, but I think uh, for whatever reason, people who, well, one of the people who make some of the decisions, um, I would say probably don't train at all or have never done anything like that before, which is the only way I can realistically see those kinds of changes being made, right? Because if you've never done it, it's easier to understand the logic of, well, if this is causing some injury or some situation that we don't want, then if we remove this as an option for officers to do, then they won't do that anymore. And um, that makes sense, except for when you think of the other side, which is, well, yeah. what are they going to be left with then? And I think that's a big... Well, you mentioned uh, it a little bit ago, but you're a small guy. You're 135 pounds. I would presume that the average person you deal with on the street is bigger than you. Yeah, except for if it's like a middle school, like... <laughs> sixth grade, seventh grade, we're about to close. Yeah. Uh, outside of that, yeah, everybody's at least. Like, so that I could see that putting you in legitimate danger in any situation because like, you're obviously very good at jujitsu. We had a chance to roll before this, and it was great. But not being able to do some of those things, like a really big person could just curl you. Well, yeah, that's the other <laughs> issue, right? I mean, not even going into the you know, two people of the same size and you take away the ability for one of them to control the other person with body-to-body -body control, mm -hmm. that's, that's almost impossible. Yeah. And then you make the one person who's supposed to control that other person 30, 40, 50 pounds lighter. Yeah. Then it's like, okay. It's already It's already almost impossible without the weight disparity, the strength disparity, right? Then you add those into the other person's favor. I mean, what? like I said, I mean, if you're going to remove those things, that's fine. But what is the alternative then? Because if there isn't an alternative, that's that's not really making the situation better. <clears throat> Very true to me. And you know, well, let me ask you this: because it seems obvious, because we do train, we know, we understand that these these controls are the safe way to go. But born out of ignorance, people that don't understand neck true. restraints look scary. So we now have this legislation, and the the gap there is that ignorance. It's the lack of training. And you know, Henry had pointed out that on a, a nationwide average, different departments would be different, but. It's like four hours a year of actual um, like hand-to-hand -hand training. If I'm not mistaken, like cuffing techniques are mixed in there as well. Mm -hmm. So actual uh, control of a suspect, four hours a year. I mean, if you're doing four hours a week, I'm going to say you're not training enough. I mean, it's just the reality of, of physical training. We all know that you got to put the time in. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you see as the roadblocks, you know, be they financial or sure. motivational or, or what have you, for the departments to offer and, and sustain better training for the officers? Yeah, I mean, that short answer is it's different for every place, every department, uh, for a lot of reasons. One, luckily our department, we have we have probably more training than most places as far as the, the different aspects of what we have to do. 
but I mean, it's still not as it's still not as much as I would like. Um, it's not it's not like one fifth of our day, like how Jocko recommends. You know, twenty yeah. percent. I mean, that would be great, but um, some of the reasons. I mean, logistically, there is scheduling. I know that's a huge one. Staffing. Um, there's a lot of places that run twelve-hour shifts, and uh, if you go six to six, six to six, one of those people, one of those shifts has to be extended. Uh, either come in early or uh, stay late, and that that's that's one of the variables. And then presuming that that people, I mean, would want to get paid for it, which they should. I mean, I, I feel like if you're going to do something that is connected to work, that you would possibly have to do at work, then you should get paid for it through the department. And I, I mean, honestly, I don't think some places would do it. They just wouldn't fund it. Um, so then that leaves the officer to, of course, train on their own, which a lot of, you know, a lot of people do do that and not as much as it should be, but it's getting, you know, it's, it's, it's slowly improving with uh, stuff, all these different organizations that are willing to support and even different gyms that are willing to, to sponsor and um, let officers uh, get their reps in. But I mean, that's not the ideal way, right? The ideal way would be perfect world. You, you have it on your on your shift. So you don't have to do something else in addition to your 12 hour shift mm -hmm. um, on your own time, which would be taking away time from your family and from even earning other incomes like overtime or off duty things. Uh, of course it's worth it, right? When you have to have a situation to protect yourself, but that's one of the factors. Uh, money, yeah, like I think money is the probably the biggest one. And then um, scheduling it is, is kind of challenging for, like I said, depending on what schedule the department is running. Uh, we're lucky we have a lot of overlapping shifts uh, on a certain day of the, the month. So on those days, we are able to do a training for an entire shift for the whole day because there would be basically be double coverage. Mm. Um, but so, many places don't have that uh, luxury. And, and if those places don't, then they're either left to train on their own or get it in whenever they can. And and part of it is just like an old fashioned, you know, it's always been that way. So people try to just perpetuate and keep it going, right? Say, well, we didn't right. we didn't train more than X amount before, so why we gotta why we gotta do it now? Um, and <laughs> if if only I, I I imagine I'd be willing to bet that. If a department were willing to, you know, to buck the trend or whatever way, find it, find the money, and and get this training in place, I think that, especially if it's a large department, because there's always settlements and things like that. I think just in pure numbers, because ultimately politics and numbers drives the machine. Um, but it would work out, and 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 especially using New York as a counterexample. So hypothetically, uh, Bellevue starts today offering training for all the officers. So five years from today, where is Bellevue at in comparison to complaints of use of force, settlements, all that, um, and how does that reflect adjusted for per capita? But with New York, who now basically is mandated to punch people in the face because we can't hold them down, um, I think that there's going to be a financial advantage of investing some of that money in the training so you're not pushing it out in settlements and you're not hurting citizens. And I think that will contrast very clearly with what I am sure we're going to see in the next few years out of New York. Yeah, no, I mean, luckily, uh, Marietta PD in Georgia has already been doing, uh, that's one of the, the the departments that I know Henry is hyping a lot. And they have data for almost two years worth of training that they've mandated. Okay. So they have about 130 officers, 95 officers eventually 
uh, bought into doing the training. And then they had the control group of non-trained, non-jujitsu trained officers that they could compare, right? And I think, like I said, every department is different. Every state is different. The amount of training each officer receives is different from place to place, even within the same region. But like I said, I never, I never worked in any department outside of Washington and Hawaii, but some places the training is, is very, very minimal. So if you compare that to what they were doing over the, since 2018, which is once a week, hour long jujitsu classes for, for every officer who, who was, um, interested in it for almost two years. I mean, the data is clearly showing that it's less injurious to the officers, less injurious to the suspects, even less uh, uses of force overall. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about the other the dollar amounts, like a lot of people only get moved by the bottom line, but the LNI claims, the injury on duty went down too. And I mean, there was no real way you could argue like, wow, this isn't, this is not a good idea. I mean, it, it's clearly every single way, you, every angle you look at it, it's like, this is a win for the department, for, win for the city, community. So I think one, I mean, all it takes is one place to start doing that. And eventually other, they'll be buying from other places. Yeah. And just that, that's, that's just how life in general works, right? Somebody does something and say, like, oh, that looks like a good idea. And then a few 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 uh, months later then there's multiple places or people doing that same thing and um, is uh is there a way for civilians to volunteer to pretend to be people attacking the cops so that they can train i would totally well, the, go to the local <laughs> there's there's role playing um yeah. the the academy burian would you'd be basically independent contractor um that job is kind of it's not, I mean, you, you'd you be kind of the the training dummy for, I mean, it sounds like a good idea conceptually to do. <laughs> but it's like, oh, I'll go earn some extra money and on a day off today and not doing anything. But if you think about it, the way the setup is, right? The, the, if there was a mock scene of your specific action, which would be the same every one, right? You can't do something completely different every single one. You have to feed a certain look and hopefully the recruit um, picks, up, picks up on it and does the appropriate response. And if the response is some kind of control takedown, um, you know, you could be doing that control takedown for, I don't even know how many amount of times, you know, for whatever many number of recruits. And then it, it could get old kind of fast. Um, it's not like, oh, I get to just, you know, grapple, grapple with people. I mean, it's, it's your role is very limited. Yeah. And it w- understandably, because you can't just make it like a free for all, like oh, every, anything goes. And, um, but there's that. And then some agencies, um, they use actually the explore programs. I know sometimes for that, some some college UWPD has an explore program that they have the the students who are in that program participate in role playing, and that's a great way to get exposure to some of the some of the scenarios. You know, it's it's a, I think it's a good. I mean, I can. It's hard to find a reason why oh that would be a bad idea for civilians to experience just from the other side. So I can see from a law enforcement perspective, and um, in a nutshell, what is the explore program? That's like a program to get people, students typically, right? They have high school ones and uh, I didn't even realize they had college ones, but just exposure to what the different roles of the department are. Different units, different personnel, get firsthand communication and getting to know people. It's kind of like a community academy for people who might be interested in law enforcement uh, as a career, but um, just more exposure to I guess, interaction with people inside of a specific department, which is always a good thing. I mean, I, I can't 
it's hard to find a bad reason for that, but um, to not have that. Yeah. And um, especially now, I mean, just, you know, many of the misconceptions and things about our work, I mean, from an outside, from outside's perspective, I would almost blame. So, well, why do why do people think this about the department or, or some piece of equipment? It could be anything. Part, a big part of it, in general, if I had to generalize, which is not a good idea, but if I had to, I would say it's the department's fault. We're not we're not educating people, and if we don't educate people on why we do stuff or this is why we this is how we do this and why we do this, then what are they going to be left to make that make a decision uh, on? What are they going to base their opinion on? It's going to be on whatever else is out there, which is sometimes not correct information. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, to fix that, right, to address that, as a, as a journal, like I said, generally we should, we should take a more active role in being, um, show, sharing what we do. And that's like, that's hard to say generally, like I said, because every department has different stuff. Every department does things differently, different procedures. I mean, even different equipment. And I think it's on in each individual agency to kind of, to do that. Because if we don't do it, then it's just going to be left to the general public to make a- Listen to the form media. An opinion, yeah. And, yeah. And like I said, that's, sometimes the media is correct, right? Sometimes they're not. And if there's no other voice, then I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a person to be like, well, that's what, well, I, that's like, the conclusion yeah. I came to because that's all the information I had. Yeah, I, I would like to say that one thing I've really enjoyed with you is that um, you're very active in the community. I constantly see funny little videos of you skateboarding with kids and and stuff, and it affects my day. <laughs> Mine too. Yeah, it's, hopefully it, theirs too. Yeah, it seems like everyone's having a good time, and it's nice to see that. Like you said, it's nice to see that side of the of officer, just anybody, yeah. but um, interacting well, with the community. Our role is really. The scope of our role is typically very small. In patrol, we would go to nine one one calls, right? And what mm -hmm. kind of scenarios are nine one one calls? Usually emergency. Emergencies, right? No, I mean they try to weed out the ones where the kid is telling the nine one one call taker that sister is not sharing the Xbox, right? But besides those <laughs> ones, it's not. Those don't get to us. Luckily, thankfully, they get screened out, right? And it's like, well, that's not a police. We're not gonna send the police for that one. But if somebody's <laughs> calling nine one one, it's for an emergency, right? And somebody is in crisis. It's uh, there's a crime happening or some kind of situation is in progress, which is probably not a good situation. And if that's the only context that we have the ability to interact with people, that's not good. <laughs> and I think that's what, if you're gonna, there's people who look at outreach and things like what we do as 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 a waste. They say, well, it's not, it's not a, it's a superfluous, it's a waste of time. Like, why are you doing that? And I mean, the only counter to that I would say is, well, when else are we going to have people uh, the opportunity to get to know us? Like, there isn't going to be one. It's not going to be at the call where the person's in crisis or somebody just got uh, physically hurt. I mean, that's not the one to be sitting down to interact with the person to get to know the officer. I mean, that's that's the priority is on the person who is survivor of the crime, right? And we have to deal with that first. So, if we don't have outside of those opportunities. Uh, we won't have any. And then the, the, du the dual benefit is, one, the community will get to interact with law enforcement in a non-law enforcement capacity, a, in, in, not in a typical law enforcement capacity. 
And then officers will get to interact with the community in a non-law enforcement capacity. So it's both sides that, because if you think about it from our lens, like I said, if, if you're not born and raised in the city that you work in and you're in, in a law enforcement agency, the only time you will interact with any person is when something's going wrong. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. That's so if your only lens is something's going wrong, guess, <clears throat> guess what your lens will be after five years of working there? You'll think everybody's screwed up, everybody's, especially because there's some people that are repetitively having something go wrong. Whatever the issue is, could be some crime that's getting committed or, you know, it looked like a person who is, somebody's arrested for something, say, hey, you can do better than this, come on, right? And then the next week they're doing it again. You can do it better, come on, better than this, do it again, and keep on doing that. So pretty soon, either you will think they're not listening or something, you know, might be, not singing and you become, it's super easy to get very cynical and callous and indifferent. And, and that's, that's kind of like, I would say all first responders kind of get exposed to that as a phenomenon. Cause the only time we meet people is what they're almost, I would say many times that they're very worst, worst point mm-hmm. in their life, worst place they ever were in ever, not sober. We don't even know the other side of who they are ever. Yeah, and it's, it's almost bizarre sometimes when we see people that uh, we're able to interact with when it's not in a nine one one context, because we don't get to see, we don't ever get to see that. So it's important to me. I mean, initially, like I was talking about for the the gear and doing the jujitsu, that was for me initially, and then it became kind of like a showcase for the art and the outreach showcases our interactions and builds relationship. But it's also for me, so I get to have a balance of well, not everybody's doing screwed up stuff. Because that's the only thing I'll, I'll be able to see otherwise. Some unfortunate situation, some terrible incident, and then it makes a balance for us. you know. So doing those things has that. And it is a win for both sides too when, when that happens, when we have the ability to interact and build relationships. And then the other benefits is just it. I mean, if somebody is more comfortable to share information with you, then it will help solve crimes. And, and I think people forget, even people who are whatever side of the, the fence people are for our work. I mean, if somebody's like, well, that's not a, that's not a law enforcement role to connect with kids and do, you, should be, you should be fighting crime, right? And we'll say, well, what do you think? How do you think we solve crimes? People tell us information. And how would, why would they tell us information? Well, there should be a level of trust that's built that makes the person feel comfortable enough to tell you the information. Because if that trust is not there, they're not going to tell you information. And mm-hmm. if you don't tell you information, the crime is not going to get solved. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many wins for that approach. It's, I think the hard part is the cell is it's not a thing that is connected typically to what we do. So, and it's not a tangible way to quantify it. Like, how do you quantify that interaction on an Excel, you know? <laughs> like, what is that? What, is it, what, do you, what do you even call that? You know, or is that just one of those? Like if I do a skate with the skate camp, like what is that on the sheet? It's not on there. It's not yeah. even on there. You get five points. <laughs> so speaking of public perception, um, I'm curious what, what your experience has been and, and particularly with, uh, with the Bellevue Police Department, the events of last summer, right? George Floyd, the protests, the calls to defund and or abolish the police. Um, what's your take on that? What's that been like in your department? Um, cause I mean, it's not Seattle, it's not Portland, but you know, Bellevue is a legit city. How, how did that play out for you guys? 
Well, for ours, it's hard to give perspectives on other communities. Right. right? Like, um, I mean, we went to Seattle a couple of times for mutual aid for at their request. And um, I, th- I feel like our community is very, very supportive of us. I can, like I said, I can't speak for every person, obviously, but from the interactions that I've had personally with people in the community and the sentiments that I've heard being shared in different for- formats, like online and television, newspaper. I feel like our community is very supportive of that. And we're very lucky to have our community support. Um, well, that's super encouraging. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's not like, you know, Bo and I talking around these topics in general on the podcast and whatnot. Uh, most of what we see are the Seattle's and the Portland's and you know, sure. Minnesota and, and everything the going negativity. haywire. Uh, so it's, it's nice to hear that at least the Bellevue community is more on the supportive side. Yeah, and it's kind of hard to... I mean, the, the bigger the community, the harder it is to say, well, this community supports. Because I think the perception is is different depending on where you work, uh, who's making a complaint about something, if something is wrong. I mean, there's the vocal minority a lot of times gets more attention anyways. And so that kind of skews the perception of, well, how much support or lack of support is there? Um, I think the hard part is that um, we have no control over the outside entities. Like I I can't go to Minneapolis, I can't go to a city outside of where I work and do anything over there. And it doesn't make sense that I would, why, that's not my job. All I can do is focus on what's going on in our community and building the relationships in our community. And I think that's the reason why, that's part of the reason why I think people support a small part, because if somebody were to ask us, like, well, what are you guys doing for the community? I would list all the things, you know, the, the dinner we served, uh, when we had pre-pandemic Salvation Army dinners every month and the teen center dinners at the Boys and Girls Club and coordinating uh, donated furniture to get delivered to families in transitional housing. They're coming out of homelessness and shop with a cop and taking uh, families that are in need and letting them have a... Uh, a little bit of uh, gift cards from Target to go shopping for presents. And I mean, you know, we, the free self-defense classes that we do. Um, I mean, we do a lot of different things for the community that I feel like are very positive. And I mean, at the end of the day, that's the only, in the beginning, it's easy to get bent out of shape from a perception of that's being shared by a person who doesn't live in our community, coming from the outside. Because you know, people will do it. Well, they'll project or they'll see an image or see an incident and then project it to the whole profession. And in the beginning, they used to bother me because I wanted to say, hey, that's not that's not what's happening. Like, I, I'm, I feel like I'm still not immersed enough that I would be, well, I'm just clearly biased because that's what I do. But I can see, well, I just had this great interaction with these youth at this place right here yesterday or... Tomorrow we're gonna to do a, we're gonna do a different event with this other group, and I mean it's, it's very contrast to what is being displayed nationally, and that used to bother me. But I mean at the end, like I said, same thing. You can't we can't change, can't go to all those other places, and all we can do is have control over the impact mm-hmm. that we have in our own individual communities, and that's not that goes beyond what we do as a profession. That goes to any person. Like you can't. All you can do is control, yeah, all you can do is control your own uh, interactions and your own actions within whatever little circle that you have. And that's it. So, well, I think you hit the nail on the head there with the vocal minority. 
I think that's even to the global level, that is uh, an enormous distortion of what various communities actually feel because there are such a small group of people making so much noise about things they're concerned about, but it, it can feel like, well, everybody thinks we should defund or abolish the police, which is insanity in my opinion. There's a, it's a very small minority of people that actually believe that, but it's represented disproportionately. And back to the old, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, those types of stories are going to get far more clicks, far more attention than, uh, you know, shop with a cop and all of the good stuff that you are doing. So I don't know, as far as, you know, doing what you can, Bo and I, we've got a, a tiny little platform here and hopefully we can balance the scales a tiny bit. Yeah, no, and, we appreciate that. And report on the, all the good <laughs> stuff that cops are doing. I mean, I, I just find it very interesting when if they, even if a person believed any of those things, that, that's that's their opinion, but why it would not benefit them to have a sit down or a dialogue with somebody that is of a contrary opinion. I just, <clears throat> I just never understood when the answer to that scenario is, well, I won't talk to that person. Like this does never made any sense to me when yeah. you have a disagreement. Like, well, my answer will be to ignore or, or try to come up with a solution that doesn't in involve them at all or that, that group or anything. And uh, I mean, that's happening quite a bit. And I don't know. I mean, it's it's, well, in some ways that's how the, to me that if you really going in that same train of thought, that's how legislation like what happened in New York city gets passed. Like yeah. I guarantee you, if they did talk to any law enforcement person, it was it was almost as a formality. Like, okay, this is the bill that we're going to pass you guys, and hope you guys are okay with it. And it was, it was <laughs> just <laughs> thought we'd let you know. Just let, I mean, that, I mean, if that's that doesn't, I don't even count that, right? I mean, that's not a engagement. That's just that's like I said, it's an inevitability at that point. And if that even happened at all, I would I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't happen at all. And I think that's the biggest. If if there's legislation that gets passed from anything to do connected to us, hopefully you, I mean, it's, it's a big presumption that there is a dialogue with some entity that is connected to the people who are actually going to have to implement that legislation. Because I'd say most of the time, if not almost every time is, is there, there, there's, there is no imp input at all from that, which I just, it just confuses me. Like why, you know, it, I understand if there's a person who has a, a negative view on law enforcement, but presuming they're trying to do something that is going to be to benefit the community, why would you not want a dialogue from a person who has, who's actually going to implement the thing that, or not implement the thing that you're trying to propose? It's just, I understand. Well, just, clearly you're on the wrong team. It's, it's the pull of, of the, uh, of tribalism mm -hmm. and the, the polarization that we've seen, particularly in the last, you know, four, you could argue 10 years that, that's that's become the the rules. You don't talk to the other side, and yeah. and we're seeing where that leads, and it's nowhere good. Uh, we have to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, just something like I like I said, I appreciate you guys doing this for letting uh, bringing people on that have a, a voice of from something that was not um, familiar to you. I mean, that's that's the whole point. I mean, that's why I do like the kids who the skate camps or the the ones that I meet at the park, I'm pretty sure that they never had an interaction with an officer like that before 
uh, or any interaction that wasn't a negative one. And then if yeah. you think about it, it's like, well, that makes sense because the only time we get involved is when something is going wrong, right? And like I said, that's fine, except for if we're trying to uh, build relationships with the community to show another facet of who we are. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing to humanize uh, us um, and that the value of it is, like I said, there's so many different wins, but that only will happen if, I mean, there has to have, there have to be a mutually agreeing scenario. You can't just have one side say, hey, we're gonna talk to you or mm -hmm. it doesn't work out, right? And then that's why I like activities like training, uh, skateboarding or any activity that is physical because you don't have to, the hardest thing, to, one of the hardest things for me, for me to do is sit down in a thing and just talk to people. <laughs> I don't like doing that. I'd rather like, hey, let's go, let's go train or let's go shoot hoops or let's go, I don't know, let's go lift weights or let's go do something else, skate, yeah. know, bomb the hill or some, some, something where we can have a connection without sitting down and making it like forced. Like, okay, now right. we're gonna tell me what you do. Okay, now, and then I'll tell you what I do. And then now we're gonna take turns asking each other. That's still, there's value in that. That's better than nothing. But I, I think that's a little bit less organic than, it seems more, it's, it's harder to make that more natural, right? Than, uh, than doing some activity, which is why I like doing activities. It's just- Sure. If we could mic it up, we would just go ahead and roll just and rolling. record the podcast. And say, you <laughs> know, I'm rolling. chatty when I roll. Yeah, <laughs> live, live, live mic rolls. Right. So. One of my uh, only interactions that I can think of with a police officer that was like outside of, I've gotten a ticket before, so outside of that was uh, Officer Dave from the D.A.R.E. program <laughs> in like the late 90s, early 2000s. And for anyone unfamiliar, it was just a, a program to help kids stay off drugs. And he would stop by the school, the elementary school, and he was actually a really nice guy. And that was like my only interaction with the police until I was in my late 20s and I got a speeding ticket. And that was embarrassing. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that guy was nice too. So that was good. But yeah, I, th I think you're right. Being able to, uh, show the community that you're human is important. It reminds me of like, you ever like see a teacher when you were a kid in like the score and you would like run the other way. Cause you're like, why is the teacher outside of the school? <laughs> like it kind of reminds me of what you're describing. It's like, Oh, like run away and hide from them, you mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, but that's what kind of what you're describing reminds me of that. It's like this idea that like you have teachers or in your case, the cops are like, they're not real people. They just do this one thing and that's all they do. They can't be normal humans like me. And I think that's wrong. You know, you should be able to let people know like that you have a personality and you have thoughts and you like to do fun things and I mean, there's, that's that's fun in itself, and the, like I said, the wins in addition to that, and uh, you know, understanding that there's some people who just don't like police and or the idea of law enforcement. I mean, that's a completely different topic, right? If the, if that person's goal is to eliminate us as an entity, I mean, that's that person's opinion too. I mean, that's fine. I, I'm not gonna. The only thing I would ask that person is, well, what is going to replace that then? What what is the entity that's going to replace public safety? Uh, when something dangerous is happening, who's going to do that? And if it's going to be a group of people who are trained in doing things to address violent situations, sometimes physically, it's like, well, we already have that already. That's <laughs> what police do right that's now. Police, yes. And if it's so, I, I, I guess I, I don't know. I, 
I wish there was a way to have a dialogue. I mean, when we do protests uh, or on the line, if it's if it's able, if it's safe to do, I mean, my favorite thing is to engage with people uh, on the line, and it's not always possible because sometimes it's it's not safe to do it. But if it is safe, then I, I always tell people when we were we we're helping with um, when the East Precinct before it was. Um, taken over in that whole uh, area of Capitol Hill. When we went down for mutual aid, one of the posts that we were on, I asked all the people the same question. I was like, why is it that we have to have a, we have to have like a tragedy happen to have any kind of attempt at dialogue of some kind. And, and I think what I came away with is, well, if we, if our goal in the law enforcement, I guess I say I shouldn't speak for every law enforcement, but if, if our department, if the goal is to interact with the community, to build relationships, get people to know, like, hey, I'm not a robot, I'm a human being, and all those kinds of things, who's who does the onus of responsibility for that fall on? And I can say, you know, just from doing what I do, it's not going to be the person who is just in the community to seek that out. It's going to have to be us. Like we will have to proactively do that because if we don't do it, then what other way are you going to be able to do an interaction? Like you're not going to have one. If I was in the law enforcement, I wouldn't be flagging down law enforcement officers like, hey, can I talk to you for a second? I just, that wouldn't be my thing. You know, I would never have any kind of interaction. Um, and, and I think that's how many people are. They're not going to, Unless there's a specific event or in, like the coffee with a cop, that's one of the national promoted, nationally promoted things where they have uh, some business establishment that has coffee without any agendas. You just show up and you talk to people. The, the idea behind that is to do stuff like humanize the badge and all those things. The problem is people who show up to those events are not the people that I want to engage with. <laughs> not, nothing wrong with those events and nothing wrong with the people who show up. But I mean, you're preaching that's, to the choir at that point. That's not that's not the people I want to connect with. I want to connect with the people who are living in uh, our public assistance housing, and 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 we're not gonna have a. I mean, we have National Night Out, and we have Neighborhood uh, Block uh, Watch, that especially surrounding that event where we would get to interact with people. But that's only once a year. So you know, unless I want to just wait till August, which is when it is first Tuesday August, then when else is when is it going to happen? Well, I'm going to make it happen. So I'm going to do it. Right. I'm just going to go into the communities and introduce myself and and it's amazing how quickly that will turn into you just being um that becoming that becoming your thing yeah and that's how that became my thing i guess because i wasn't comfortable doing that i mean i didn't know any i didn't know one person in bellevue when i moved up here so i could literally guarantee that i could drive around for an entire shift and see 200 300 people and not know a single person which is weird coming from uh, island on wahoo where you could randomly do that and almost one out of every five people will have some kind of connection to you and some kind of degree of separation <laughs> would be so small going from that to there is no way I'm going to know any person here at all. And, you know, how does that change? It has to be on the individual to proactively do it. And yeah, that's, it's, that's, uh, it's interesting because as you say all this, we're about 100 feet from a precinct and I've never walked in i mean of course right I and mean, that's something you know so you had some kind of crime to report or some kind yeah. of incident right and that's normal i mean there's no sure it's kind of weird to actually think like well i'm gonna go talk to some officers right now right that's not a, that's not an unusual <laughs> what'd thing. you see bo <laughs> like, like, what's going on it's like oh nothing i'm just trying it's to introduce Tuesday, you know just going to see the cops <laughs> yeah we, ha we have to take it upon ourselves to to if presuming we want to want to have um improved relationships build on whatever good ones we already have then it's on us to do you know 
I'll go back to the, um, what is that? Uh, read a lot of books. Um, I, I don't read as much as I should, but the idea of um, owning that, right? Extreme ownership of that. Mm -hmm. Like whose fault is it that there's like this discontent or misunderstanding? And I mean, I, I would never blame the public for that. Like I would blame myself. Like it's my fault because I didn't do enough things to make a person understand this is who I am, this is what I do, this is what I'm about. And that's the only way it's gonna change. And if I took ownership of it, um, you know, at least I have control of that. Like I, not having the control of it will just make it perpetuate. And if I said, well, it's everybody else's fault, I don't have control over anybody else. So mm -hmm. that's the easy way for me to kind of make it into a more realistically solvable issue. Say, well, it's, if it's my fault, then I can fix it. You know? right. If it's not my fault, then what can I really do about the situation? Like I can't do anything about it. Craig, how you doing on time, man? Yeah, I was just saying that we have. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're respectful of your time, and we get well, we got on a roll yeah. here. Yeah, should we should we go and wrap this wrap up? It Let's up. call yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you again for for coming down, getting a couple rolls in, and talking to us, and shedding some light on the humanity of of police officers because they're humans too, and um, going through this with us, and so. Thank perspective you. that's been lacking particularly yeah, I lately. think so yeah. and I do well, truly appreciate it so no thanks Bo thanks Dan I we appreciate having a voice in a different platform and through an activity that we all enjoy like jiu-jitsu and I don't know if 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 anybody wants to look at some of the that's actually why I started sharing stuff online I mean I didn't turn into uh it started out initially as just like a way to put what I what the interaction interactions that I feel like were positive and good out there, so people can see in a in a place that is just kind of centralized or like a portfolio, a visual portfolio. So yeah, if you've got uh, any social media, you say that here. Also, send us links. We'll get it in the show notes. Yeah. Make sure people can. Because it's my name, Craig Hanaumi, C R A I G H A N A U M I, and. Yeah, I mean, can look at it. You don't have to follow or nothing. Just look at it. Just, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's, it's like not, I said, I, I don't know. I mean, people, you skateboarding with a bunch of little kids. I love it. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. It's real people. They're not paid actors, and we're not like promoting any kind of agenda. It's just, a, I feel like you'd be able to tell if it was artificial. But um, yeah, it's yeah. just, just interactions from from my work, and that's uh. You know, nobody would know, I guess, otherwise, and yeah, that's fine. But I think, in a in a at a point where we have only mostly negative stuff, I think it's good to throw in some positives. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, we, yeah, we appreciate you representing law enforcement and jujitsu with integrity. Um, we want to support that in any way we can. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Man. Of course, thanks for uh, coming out, and thanks everybody for listening to episode thirty nine of the Beyond Red and Blue podcast. Have a good rest of the morning, afternoon, and evening. Take Bye. care, everybody. Bye.